1 Samuel 19. We'll get there in just a minute. I think you've got an outline in front of you. Um, you know, um, I, I was reading about a study this week uh, that began in 2010 by the, um, a group called the Uppsala Conflict Data Program. And they began to study back in 2010 uh, the question um, of peacemakers. We're going to be talking about love in, as it manifests itself in peacemaking today. And, um, and this group seeks to answer the question, um, um, questions about that. And they, in the process of their research, they've discovered the sad truth that uh, we kind of all know that peacemakers sometimes come to very violent ends. Now think of uh, countries that you read about in the paper or you see on the news that um, where uh, a government that doesn't want outside influence can force, forcefully remove uh, peaceful humanitarian efforts, you know, people that are just in the country to help other people. Um, uh, one side or another of a military conflict might attack peacemakers, uh, hoping that, that the aid that they would give to their opponents will result in victory. Or one individual who stands opposed to a specific peacemaker um, um, often will kill that person, hoping the movement that they started will end with their death. Like uh, the, the obvious example of that is with Dr. Martin Luther King. So um, uh, it's interesting to me. There is uh, what this study has kind of proven is that um, peacemaking can be kind of a dangerous business. We're going to talk about that today as we look at. David's best friend, Jonathan, so we're over in a kind of a different book in 1 Samuel. I'm going to give you a little, a little um, background, but Jonathan, who's trying to come between, um, in essence, trying to make peace between his best friend and, his fa- and, and Jonathan's father. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background on that. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel, now we'll be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 next week. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 next week, um, looking at a little more of David's story. But um, uh, these books take their name from Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel, of the, of the United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, he was um, fundamental. There couldn't be a more transitional person in all of the Old Testament. And he transitioned them. He, he becomes the one who transitions between the period of the judges, which is right before Samuel hits the scene, and the kings, which we're going to begin to talk about today. And um, that transition um, happens in about 1050 B.C. Okay, so about a thousand years B.C., um, and um, it's interesting because really the nation under Moses, under those who followed him, under all the judges, and under Samuel really functioned as, catch this word, a theocracy, a nation led by God. And they transitioned in Samuel's day from being a theocracy to being a kingdom led by a human king. Now, it's interesting. They asked for that. Um, uh, in this period of time, about 1050, the Israelites actually demand that Samuel give them an earthly king like everybody else around us has. You can read about that in chapter 8. It wasn't this demand, uh, God says to Samuel, isn't a rejection of you. It's a rejection of me, God says. And um, um, it's interesting here 
God had called Israel to be his special people, a special nation. And their desire for a king exposed them. Can I, be, be, I need to be careful here. But their desire for a king and a kingdom exposed them as not being quite so special after all. Okay? They wanted to be like everybody else. Isn't that interesting? Now, so Samuel proclaims uh, a warning about the negative consequences of having a king. And uh, again, in chapter 8, but the people persisted. The Lord granted their request, and the Lord selects Saul, King Saul, as the first king of the United King of Israel. Uh, Samuel um, kind of recruits him and anoints him. He starts out well, um, but it doesn't go very well pretty quickly. It kind of goes south pretty quickly. Samuel has the dubious distinction uh, responsibility of going to the king now, Saul, and saying, by the way, the Lord has rejected you as king. He's going to choose another. And Samuel then, um, with God's direction, goes to the little town of Bethlehem. Heard of that place? And anoints a king, um, one of nine sons, and uh, anoints the least likely one, David, to be, be the king-elect. But David won't be king for a while. Saul will continue to be king. That's the period that we're in now. Saul's royal line would end when David took the throne. It was this David who, in chapter 17, uh, slew the giant Goliath, and that resulted in a routing of the Philistines. And David becomes a member of the royal household of uh, Saul in, in a couple of special ways. He becomes best friend and confidant to the prince, to Prince Jonathan, Saul's son, and really a, a, a distinguished leader in the Israelite army. They become fast friends. And then David marries into the family. He marries Michael, who is Saul's daughter. That in itself is an interesting uh, story. We're going to look at that in a little bit. Um, in fact, let's look at it now. Go to 1821. 1821. Uh, what kind of dad was Saul? This is good. Um, now, Michael, so I'm going to start in 1820. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. And Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. It's interesting. Michael... Um, it turns out to be not a, a match made in heaven. And uh, Michael is a problem for David. And Saul kind of knows that she will likely be. What kind of a dad is this? To talk about his daughter in that way and, uh, and to, to kind of arrange this thing. So that, that kind of happens. And, um, and so uh, people esteemed David's accomplishment more highly than Saul, which made Saul angry and jealous and suspicious of David. And at least three or four times that I can read, um, Saul tries to have David killed. That's right where we're going to pick this up when that all kind of begins in chapter 19. And we're going to read about kind of this plot that takes place. Now, John has told me that he wouldn't mind to read a little bit today. Steve is down serving as an usher, I think. So, John, would you read the first three verses of 1 Samuel 19? 
Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul was looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Now, this is going to be a continuation of the contention that begins in chapter 18. I want to, and Dan, can I pick on you for a minute? Go back to 18 and read 6 through 9. Um, Saul is in a jealous rage, okay? And so the problem begins here um, with the covenant agreement between David and Jonathan that you can read about uh, also. In, in fact, I'm going to run back before, before Dan reads. I'm going to run back to 18.3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as, as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. They became confidants, best friends, um, supportive of one another, in a covenant agreement with one another. So if you think about that and then think about what John just read about here, uh, as Saul has put kind of a, Head, uh, a price on David's head, then it, it's just this horrible thing that Jonathan's right in the middle of as a man's best friend uh, and his, his sworn enemy is his own father. Uh, Dan, if you would read, let's read about the rage a little bit. We'll start in verse 6 and read that, that through 9 in chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. Right. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the filth Philistine, that a woman had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourine with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousand and David his ten thousand. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousand. To me, they ascribe only a thousand. Now, what more can we have but, a, but the kingdom? Now, what more can can he have but the kingdom? kingdom? Yeah. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now, catch this: Jonathan's dilemma is what? Rocking a hard blade. Think about it. Okay, he is also a subject of the king. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of the king. And if you read verse 1 again in chapter 19, by the way, what was the song that the girls were singing when they came home from battle? Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slung, slain his ten thousands. Yeah, he's ten times better. Saul hears it, didn't like it, even though David was sworn uh, uh, loyal to King Saul. We'll see that a little bit even in our lesson today. So, um, so Jonathan's dilemma is do I disobey the king or do I do the right thing? And do I do the right thing? Now, uh, so what goes in your blank here is that what is new about this, Saul is kind of committed to killing David. We're going to see several times where he'll, he'll try to do that. But in this passage, he involves others. 
okay? He gets members of his court. He makes them kind of swear that if you see David, you'll kill him. He tries to get his son, Jonathan, who's one of his generals. Uh, if you see David, I want you to kill him. Uh, so he's recruiting the help of others. You know, it's one thing to be ticked. It's another thing to try to make everybody around you ticked. Uh, am I right? It's one thing to have a vendetta against someone that's wronged you. It's another thing to try to suck everybody else into that pain, isn't it? Now, by the way, how much different is this than the, than the story we've studied for the last month with a guy who was abused, 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 Joseph, and sought no, zero retribution? That's kind of amazing. So... In verse two, Jonathan goes to David. Now he's gonna to have to do this on the sly because of the edict of verse one. And he goes to David and he, um, he warns him, okay? Um, uh, we gotta assume that verse two is only part of a larger conversation between these two friends. And he gives him the report. That's what goes in your first blank there. The report. What's the report? The report is my dad is about to kill you, and he's got another pe other people involved in this. Okay, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Okay. Next, then he offers some commands: do this, and do this, and do this. Now, um, um, how can Jonathan do this? to command David, who was the giant killer, the one who had slung his ten, uh, slain his 10,000s. Because Jonathan really outranked David, for one thing. Think about that. He's the prince. He had had, he was, um, he had all kinds of medals for uh, um, uh, valor in battle himself, okay? Uh, he and David were both kind of um, mean motor scooters where it's concerned in, in terms of, uh, of, of, being uh, soldiers. But Jonathan outranked David. He was, the, he was the prince. And so he could say, David, I need you to do this, and I need you to do this, and I need you to do this. And so he issued three or four commands here. Now, when he says, uh, in part of verse two, when he says, therefore, okay, he's getting ready to tell them what to do, please be on guard in the morning. Now, in my Bible, it, how does it say it? In your tomorrow morning, maybe in your Bible? What does that mean? Watch out. Watch out, but it also means that danger is imminent. Doesn't it? I think it means that he's in immediate danger. This is happening tomorrow. And he's also going to try to intercede tomorrow. And so he also gives, then he gives the report, he gives them some commands, and then he uh, talks about some actions on his part, on Jonathan's part, that he's going to do because there's a immediate danger afoot. Now, what, in verse 3, I, I just left the question here. What kind of risk does going to his dad involve for Jonathan? Betrayal. Uh, certainly he's going to be accused of being a betrayer. He's already been accused of that. Look, go with me back to 14. Interesting, the relationship between a dad and a son here. Uh, I'm going to go to 1443. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Now this was, they were in battle. Jonathan was behaving with valor and was uh, 
putting the Philistines to flight. But Saul had, I'm going to say this word intentionally, Saul had stupidly commanded all the army not to eat until the battle was done. And they were starving. They were famished. They were nearly faint. Jonathan didn't know about the command, and he finds a honeycomb and gets a little honeycomb, and it gives him a little strength, and he's whipping Philistines right and left. Well, Saul finds out about it. Saul says to Jonathan in verse 43 and 14, what have you done? So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Um, Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Now, what Saul had done is made a pledge that if I catch anybody eating before the battle's over, they're going to be put to death. And here's his son who didn't know about the edict, does that and presents himself to the king. So um, I, I find it really intriguing here. This guy is not thinking right. He is... Um, he is not beyond murdering his own son and heir. And so when he finds out about Jonathan's loyalty to David, what's he going to do? Now look, look at 2030. Uh, the language gets a little PG-13 here, okay? He finds out about their relationship and about his warning. And in 2030... Saul says to his son, then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? That's just a funny verse. I, I mean, we could put that in, um, we could put that in um, language that would be modern day, and it, it literally, we couldn't repeat it in church. Okay. What kind of guy is this? And what kind of courage did the son have to be willing to go to dad and say, Dad, you got it wrong here, which is basically what he did. Okay, let's, can, we, can we read on? Let's go on. John, can I come back to you and read verse 4 and 5 out of chapter 19? Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David, he has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Okay. I'm going to throw a, a phrase out that you've heard a lot. And I'm not going to moralize on it, but I'm going to use it as a backdrop for what the problem is in verse 4 and 5 that Jonathan, the son of the king, goes after. You've heard it said, might makes right. Okay? I'll get back to it in a minute. Just let that wash over your brain for a minute maybe over your soul. Now, Jonathan intercedes with the truth. Um, what a complicated role he's going to play here as a peacemaker. 
He's got to intercede with the truth. So as you look at verse four and five, it's interesting. He even talks in third person here. You catch this? Um, do not let the king. Isn't that interesting? You ever work for a person who talks about themselves in, in third person? You know, as your supervisor, okay? It's funny. It's like, wait a minute, it's just you and me. Is there somebody else in the room? Well, okay, so he is being duly respectful of the king, and he, ref he talks to his dad. It, it, at least it's not recorded for us that he says, Dad, come on, get, get real here. He says, don't let the king make a mistake here. Um, he is in such a perilous position here. Um, complicated. And out of respect, he even addresses his dad in third person. Why? Because his dad's got the ability, the authority to put David to death. And he has the authority to put Jonathan to death if he wanted to because the king in those days was sovereign. We hardly understand that in our world. But Saul, so go to your blank here. Saul had the authority to have his rival killed, but not the moral authority. And he's being called out on that by his only son. Well, I believe it was his only son. Certainly his favored son. He's being called out saying, Dad, you don't have the moral authority to do this. I know you can do whatever you want to do, O king. <laughs> but might doesn't make right. You don't have the moral authority to do this. Now, he's going to go on to say in verse 5 that David had not given him a single reason for his murderous anger. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take us to a couple of places. Go back to 17. Go to 17. I'm gonna go to verse 52. This is the aftermath of the killing of the giant. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shariam, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. The victory was total, and David got that started. On Saul's behalf and, on, and in the name of, of the God of Israel. Look at 18.5. In 18.5, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. He never did anything but good for the king. David didn't. Uh, look at 1423. Got one more. David was a musician. I like that about him. Although he wasn't a trumpet player, he was a guitar player. But, okay. Um, that's okay, my son's a guitar player. So, the 1423, um, sorry, wrong verse. What, what did I tell you? Am I in 16 and not 14? Probably so. You're killing me. You 
There you go, 1623. So it came about that whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would be refreshed and be well. And the evil spirit would depart from him. He did that for him. It, it, is, it is, I am depressed. And so I call Bill Reeves and I say, Bill, come play the violin for me. And it makes me feel better. Okay? Rhonda played the harp back in the day. Um, she was always harping at me about something. No, that... The, <laughs> But I just love to hear her play, you know? That's what happened here. It, it chased the demons away, you could argue. David had never done anything but good. He'd never given the king a reason for this murderous anger. Now let's go on with the story, John. Pick it up in verse 6 and read through 7. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Okay. Now, I know you're thinking you know too much, and you do. Okay, so back up from that for a minute. Let's stay right here in 19 for a minute. Can I get somebody in a minute to go to Exodus 2 and read verse 24 and 25? Exodus 2, 20. Thank you, Cindy. And can I get somebody else to go to James 5, 12? Thank you, Wayne. Good, James 5, 12. Okay, so King Saul hears his son's advice. Saul says, okay, son, I hear you. I, you ever been in a conflict and somebody says, it kind of breaks the tension. Somebody says, okay, I hear you. I hear you. That, that's what's going on here. Okay, son, I hear you. It can, he kind of calms down. Now, so he issues here upon hearing, and he really did. He, he didn't just hear with his ears. He kind of heard, at least temporarily, with his heart. And he says, son, I hear you. And so he issues an oath problem. Uh, Wayne, what, is, what does James say about taking an oath? There's only one lawgiver and judge, one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't take an oath. Okay, Saul makes an oath that he's not going to keep, for one thing, which is going to heap guilt upon him. If, if, if he had done the wrong thing, that's bad enough, but he made an oath not to, that's even worse. So James just says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So instead of saying, I'm not going to do this, he said, uh, you know, as the Lord lives, I'm not going to do this. All right. Um, but he did hear it. Now, I got to ask this. Does God hear you when you pray? The Sunday school answer is yes. Okay. You remember the little boy who was staring out the window during Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher said, Billy, what are you looking at out there? And realizing that he was in Sunday school, he knew he had to come up with a Sunday school answer. So he said, well, I think it's a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> The Sunday school answer is God does hear you, but he hears you in the sense 
that Saul is hearing his son here. He hears you with his heart. Uh, on October 4th, 2020, by the way, uh, can you imagine things being worse than they are today with the President of the United States and Walter Reed? I, you know I mean? Add that to all the, the debates this week and all the other stuff that's going on and COVID-19. And um, uh, I don't get to see the people I want to see because they're afraid to get out or they're sick or whatever. Can it get worse? It just kind of keeps getting worse. Uh, and maybe I shouldn't say that, Wayne, because it will, you know. But does God hear us? Cindy Reed at the worst time in Israel's history, you could argue, they were all enslaved by a nation that didn't like them. Here's what is said. Exodus 2, verse 24 and 25. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. He heard them. Can I say this to you? Whatever year that was, about 1500 B.C., somewhere in there, it was worse than what we're going through as a nation. And God heard them. He said, I've got a relationship with you. Now, that was based on a covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You heard, you heard Cindy read it. But he's got a relationship with you, too. He hears you. So Saul says, Never mind, I'm not going to do this. I, I, I'm making a pledge, making a vow. The result was a temporary change of heart. By 2031, it was all over. So by, by chapter 20 and probably even before that, it was all over. Uh, if you look at 2031, um, um, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. He's saying this to Jonathan. Therefore now send and bring him to me for he must surely die. Um, he changes his mind again. He changed, he's going to go back and forth on this the rest of 1 Samuel. But, but uh, the result here in this scene was he had a temporary change of heart. And so the example that we've been talking about today, here's your final blanks. A person who cared for both the wrongdoer, his dad, and the wronged, David. The example is one of, who cared for both the wrongdoer and the wronged as he sought reconciliation between them. And so there's three roles involved here in this story. The wronged person, the wrongdoer, and the peacemaker. And when you encounter something like this in your family or maybe at work or in your neighborhood, what role do you find yourself in? And you might want to look at, at any conflict you're currently in and say, which, which role am I in? Am I the guy that got wronged or am I the wrongdoer? Or am I trying to be a peacemaker? Okay? Becoming a peacemaker is really, really hard work. Often it can lead you at odds with both of the other parties. There is no guarantee that your efforts at reconciliation are going to work because it takes two people, that wrongdoer and the wronged, to agree to make that happen. But I'm going to say to you, be a peacemaker anyway. 
It's a unique and hard position. And has there ever been a time in our history where we need more of a peacemaker role to be played in our, in our world? Let me give you three words. You ready? This whole series has been about love and how it manifests itself in family relationships and all that. Here's your three words, and we'll close with this. Love speaks up. Can I say it again? Love speaks up. Aren't you glad that even though it didn't last, that Jonathan had the backbone to stand up to a father who was so in authority and so in control and so despotic that he could have murdered his own son right there, and he didn't. He certainly could have murdered Jonathan's best friend, but he didn't. Love speaks up. Be Jonathan. Find out what part of our world's craziness you need to get involved in and do it. Wayne? Don't you think that Saul saw that David I think that had a lot to do with it. I also think the girls like David more than they like Saul. So I can be, you asked me. All right. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you for being here, gang. It's good to see you. Be careful. Put your mask back on on the way to church. I'll see you. We'll be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 next week.